Hey, Midlands Church. Please join me for the reading of God's Word from John 7. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Good morning, Midlands Church. I hope each of you are doing well. And thank you so much for joining us and prioritizing Church Online. Uh, wanted to say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms within our body, and also for the people within our body, Happy Mother's Day to, to your mothers as well. We can't even begin to appreciate how grateful we are for our moms. For our dads, um, this may be the best bit of wisdom you get if you haven't done anything yet for your mom or for your wife. Honestly, you might just want to bail on this sermon and just take the walk of shame to the door right now, even if your wife sees you, um, and go to Wally World and scrounge up whatever they have because you're pushing it. It's a little late. Um, I can say this because I'm normally the one waiting till the last minute. I'm feeling confident right now because it's Friday when I'm recording this. And so I've got all of today and I've got tomorrow. But for you guys, you don't, you don't have much time. So you, you better make something happen. Best of luck with that. Um, yeah, I, I think you'd be better off in the long run leaving and not hearing me preach and, and going and getting something as opposed to staying and not doing anything. So, no, in, in all seriousness, I don't want you to leave. Um, I'm excited about what we have uh, to look at today, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share with you guys. I love the Gospel of John. I love that we've been working through this as a church, 
And uh, I'm really excited to jump into John chapter 7 today. So before we jump into that, uh, two things. One, if you would go grab your Bible, uh, I think it'd be helpful for us to work through this text together. There's kind of three main parts to this story, which I'll explain here in a minute. But it would be much easier if you have your Bibles with you so you can track along on the couch or wherever you're at. Um, The second thing is I'd love to pray a prayer for us that I pray often whenever God's word is open at Midlands and when his scriptures are taught. And it's not a prayer I came up with. It's one I heard, but um, I just think it's, it's helpful. And I hope you guys will join me in praying this as I get to teach, teach God's word today. So let's pray. Father, we love you. And I just pray that the spirit of God would take the word of God and make the children of God more like the son of God through what's shared today is as your word is preached and as Jesus is lifted up. Um, I pray that you would work on us, Lord, that the spirit of God would take the word of God and make the children of God more like the son of God. God, I can't do that in my power and my strength. There's nothing I can say to, to make that happen. But, um, but your word's alive and your spirit is present and active in your spirit. Um, works in spite of um, situations that we didn't anticipate. Your spirit is so much bigger than pre-recorded services, and your spirit, um, God, can't be contained and can't be controlled. So we expect him to work, and we ask that he would shape us today. I pray if there's people that need encouragement, that you would encourage them through the words of Jesus. And if there's people that need to be challenged and convicted, I pray that you'd incur, you'd, you'd convict them through the words of Jesus. And God, I just pray that, um, that this time would be pleasing to you and that your church would be encouraged. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, we are in John chapter 7, verse 32. We're going to be covering 32 through 52, so we've got 20 verses, and really, I'm just continuing on what Aaron and Randy have already jumped into, and Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles, and really what the Jews are doing is Jewish pilgrims are coming from all over, flooding into Jerusalem, and they're celebrating um, God's faithful provision. God's provision for the Israelites during their their wilderness wanderings and how he sustained them with water, with an abundance of provisions, how he kept his people during that 40 years of of wandering. And as kind of a way to relive that, the Jews are actually, during this week-long feast, they're living in booths. They're living in little temporary structures, sort of like the Israelites were living in. um, They were moving around the tabernacle. And they were probably living in little huts or little booths. The Israelites are living and they're camped out in these booths around Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And they're celebrating God's faithfulness in in the past. So that's kind of the long, um, I guess, the the long memory. The nearer memory is that they're also celebrating God's recent provision of a harvest. So this, this specific Jewish feast is celebrated uh, as a way to to thank God for the recent ingathering of another harvest. 
Um, so that's the Feast of Booze. Actually, Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that of the three main Jewish feasts, he says that this one was the most popular amongst the people. So the setting is a bunch of Jews in a really tight space, crammed together, noise, hustle, bustle. It maybe feels a little bit like your home feels like right now if you're not going to work. Mine has felt sort of like that, and I only have two kids. But I'm a school teacher, and I've heard from so many parents and students that say, man, it's just crazy in our house right now. Like we're just bumping into each other, and we, we're over it, and we are stir-crazy. And um, that's probably a poor comparison with the Feast of Booze. But the point being, these guys, the religious leaders, have been after Jesus, and they've been at his throat. and They've been questioning him, and Jesus, as he always does, beautifully navigates that tension of being both uh, tough-minded and yet tender-hearted. He doesn't back down from those who oppose him and who are blinded to the truth of who he is, but he operates in a way where he's gracious and compassionate towards those who are receptive to him. And so he's he's tactful, he's tough, he is. Um, I don't know, just a beautiful emulation of what it looks like to properly navigate a lot of tension and a lot of conflict, because that's kind of what we've seen. With, with Randy sharing last week, he talked about people are questioning who is Jesus, and Jesus basically says, I've come from the Father, and a lot of people are mad at him, particularly the Pharisees and the chief priests. So that's where we're at um, in the middle of this week-long feast. We're going to pick up in verse 32. It says this. Before I, before I read verse 32, I just I want to tell you, the passage we're going to look at today kind of has three main parts, three main parts to the story. The first part, I've kind of labeled the noise. There's some noise. There's some hustle and bustle. There's some disagreements. Jesus says some things they don't understand. The second part, verses 37 through 39, is the invitation. He actually, in a moment of quiet, makes a statement that is awesome that we're really going to camp out on. The third part of this passage, verses 40 through 52, is the different responses to the invitation that he makes. So we've got the noise, we've got the invitation, and then we've got the responses. Let's start by just briefly flying through the noise. 32 says this, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to harass him. So what are the these things? Well, as you saw with Randy sharing, some are saying, some are believing Jesus and wondering if he's the Christ and others are rejecting, and there's a whole spectrum of opinions, and the Pharisees can't stand it, so they're going to try to manage the crowd, manage the opinion, and lock this guy up, and they actually send these officers, that's what 32 says, the officers were known as the temple guard. And the temple guard were also Jewish, but um, their power was under the power of the religious authority, the, the Sanhedrin. And their main job, the, the officers or the temple police, was just to keep peace around the temple. That's kind of their big role. And so the Pharisees say, hey, go arrest Jesus. That's what they tell the officers. And in verse 33, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, 
and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So, temple police are en route to arrest Jesus. People are frustrated. People have different opinions. And Jesus, Jesus starts talking about the fact that I'm going to go somewhere where you guys can't join me. And there's more confusion about that. And Jesus, I think he's so masterful at kind of creating some disequilibrium and some confusion and kind of dangling the bait in front of people and then making statements as a good teacher does. And so the bait's been dangled in a sense. People are a little confused. And he's about to stand up and make a big invitation in the midst of all the noise. He's about to say something loud and clear. And I hope, guys, that what he says 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booze, that you don't just treat it as a cool history lesson, but that you hear the words that he is about to shout and you ask him, God, what do these words mean for me right now from the comfort of my home, sitting on my couch? What do these words mean for me? Says this in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. So before I tell you what he cried out, I want to just paint a little bit of a picture of one of the highlights of the Feast of Booze that was happening within this week-long celebration. And, and it was a ritual called the water pouring ritual. And what they would do is in the morning, before the morning sacrifices were made, the chief priest, who's kind of the boss of Israel, um, he is, he's got religious authority and civil authority. The chief priest would, would actually go with some priests and he would leave the temple area and he would go down to a nearby pool down a hill. And that pool was called the Pool of Siloam. And he would gather, it was him and it was other priests, and he would, with a gold pitcher, scoop out, of, scoop out water out of the Pool of Siloam and go back up the hill kind of splashing along with his little priestly procession. Again, this is called the, the water pouring ritual. It was a special kind of act within the Feast of Booze. And so as the priest and his priestly procession are going back up the hill, and by the way, I've walked this hill. It was, it's kind of cool to, to visualize this all happening um, because I got to go see the Pool of Siloam last summer. Sure enough, it's there. It's at the bottom of a hill. Um, you can go sit, walk the, the same area in the same place that our Savior walked. And it was really cool to see in a weird way. It's like I believe these stories my whole life, but it was an incredible confirmation to go see these places. And so the priests are back up. Uh, they're walking back up the hill. What's really cool is the people were all waiting. And they're waiting for the high priest to come back. And what would happen is as soon as the priestly procession led by the high priest would walk through uh, the southern entrance to the temple, 
a shofar would actually sound out three times. And this is kind of a lot of information and in Aaron's words, I know I'm nerding out a little bit, but I just think this background is so cool. So the, the priest comes through and three times the shofar blares out. And as soon as they heard the sound of that shofar, the people were ready. They had this down pat. This was a feast that was happening even during Old Testament times. And the people would start singing songs of praise and, and, and gratitude. And they would actually sing the Psalms. It's called the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118. Six Psalms. It's kind of a lot of singing. They would sing that as soon as the shofar went off. And so just imagine Israel, Jews from all over, pilgrims from near and far, gathered at the temple. The priests come in and everyone starts singing the Hallel, literally singing the Bible. And the priest would walk in and he would actually, with that golden pitcher, essentially, would start walking around the altar with the water until the entire song was sung. And when they stopped singing, the next thing that would happen, this is kind of strange, I know, but the Jewish men would in their right hand hold basically a bundle of twigs and leaves. And in their left hand, they'd hold fruit, okay, symbolic of God's provision in the wilderness. And they would raise it up and three times they would shout, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And after that, the priest would take the water that he drew from the pool of Siloam. He would take wine as well, pour it into two bowls, and would dump it out on the offering. And for a Jews, that outpouring of water had powerful significance. And what it reminded of a Jew was that it caused a Jew in two ways to look back into the past, but also in two ways it caused a Jew to look forward into the future. The two ways it, it caused them to look into the past in terms of water being poured out, one was when God provided for the Israelites through Moses, when he told them in Exodus 17, hey, strike the rock. The people are grumbling, they're complaining, they're thirsty, they're literally going to die if they don't get water. And God causes water to flow from a rock. And he, and, he, and he sustains and he fills and he quenches the thirst of his people. So they're thanking God for that, for his abundant provision in the Old Testament. But they're also thanking God for the fact that they just recently gathered a harvest. And that in order to gather that harvest, they had to have rain. Because water was everything and is everything in first century, or in it was everything in first century Palestine. Um, for us, I've got two water bottles sitting right here, and it's just no big deal. And it wouldn't be a big deal to throw that away, but you don't do that. Even when I went to Israel this year, it was interesting. They said, take short showers. Water is still considered to be very precious. So water was life. That's the two ways it caused an Israelite to look back into the past. And in terms of the future, one way it caused them to look forward was they would pray that God would water their land in the coming year. Because at this point in the, in the year, the cisterns were starting to dry up. Water was not near as plentiful. Um, and it caused them to, to anticipate the future and ask God to, to provide. But secondly, 
it also caused the Jew who knew his Old Testament to look forward to a future age, a dawning age in God's kingdom where God would pour out his spirit. And there's a number of passages in the Old Testament that link the spirit, the spirit of God that would be poured out, and how he would work in such a way that he would wash and cleanse and purify people. We're not going to look at all those Old Testament examples. I just want to give you one briefly so you can kind of understand what this water pouring ritual would bring to mind for a Jew. Here's what Ezekiel 36 says. It says in, in chapter 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart. Actually, it starts in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, this water pouring ritual for a Jew during the Feast of Beasts, booths, was huge. It was huge. And they would do that once a day, every morning, before the morning sacrifice. And then on the seventh day, the text says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, they would actually do that seven times. And so I can just see Jesus. Um, he's obviously had a few rough days at the Feast of Booths. It's day seven. He's had a lot of conflict, but he wants to get his invitation across. And so my guess is he probably seizes the moment, maybe right after this has just happened, maybe right before, maybe as the priests are down getting the water and the people are eagerly anticipating them topping the hill. Maybe he does it then. I don't know. But I know that Jesus, in making the statement he makes, is going to claim to be the fulfillment of this entire feast. Here's what he says, and I hope, guys, that this is an encouragement to you today. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I just love that invitation. Um, it's been such a joy to, to study this passage. And it's, it's challenged me in a lot of ways, particularly the, the words in verse 37 and 38. I'm going to read them one more time. Here's Jesus's invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John helps us out in verse 39. I love when he does this. He makes it really easy on us as the readers because he says, now this he said about the spirit, this being the living water that the living water refers to the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit hadn't been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, 
the Spirit of God would be poured out in fullness as the prophets in the Old Testament predicted once Jesus was glorified. Once Jesus was ascended into heaven, he would pour out his Spirit within his children. And so, guys, I think that this verse, these verses have some really, really practical implications for us. I don't know what the coronavirus has, how it's affected you and your family personally, but I know one of the things for me, I can only speak for myself, is that I for a long time have had this notion that, man, I could really drink. I could really enjoy the Lord more and really get more of him and more of his presence and more more time with him in his word, trust him more and just just enjoy him if I just had more time. And, and it's been interesting that this virus for so many, I think, is, is given us so much time. For a lot, it's actually created a lot of boredom. And I think it's, it's helped me understand that the issue is, is not a time issue. The issue is a drinking issue. The issue is that we are prone, and I am prone, Everyone thirsts. I think, I really do. I think, I think everyone is thirsting and craving for something, but what we are prone to do is to drink lesser drinks, to fill up on lesser drinks that don't really satisfy. And so it, it has been interesting to say, I mean, I, I have more time than normal. I've been working from home and it's been nice and I still have work, but it's more family time and more freedom but I still find myself oftentimes slow in coming to him in drinking. Um, and that's his, that's his call. So like I said, our issue is, is a drinking issue. It's that we all crave and have desires and have deep longings within our soul. But so often we fill up on lesser things. And what Jesus is saying is, anyone thirsts, come to me and drink, that I nourish you, that I satisfy you, that I sustain you in a way that nothing else can. And I love how the invitation is for everybody. We've just seen all the different responses to Jesus in what Randy shared. We know that there's a spectrum and people have different thoughts about this guy, and yet he stands up and says, anyone, anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And then the next verse says, whoever believes in me. So I think drinking in some ways is a, a picture of belief. And guys, biblical belief, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, it's not just a one and done, I believed, past tense. I did that. I had my drink. I'm good. Biblical belief is a one-time drink with a lifetime, with a, with a, with a lifetime implication with a lifetime of implications, and that implication being if you've truly drunk of him, if you've truly believed, if you've truly let him satisfy and you've truly trusted and surrendered and submitted to Jesus, the mark of one who has truly believed is you will continue to come back and you will continue to drink and you will continue to rest and allow him to quench your thirst. And guys, it's, it, it's not a one and done. And, and I don't know. There are a few questions that I think have kind of emerged as I've, as I've read this text. 
So I want to read these questions, and they really stem from these middle verses. The first one is this. How am I orienting my life around coming to Jesus and drinking? How am I personally orienting my life around coming and drinking? And like I shared, um, I don't have this one all figured out. But I do know the call is to keep coming back. I know that the call, just as it was the first day for the, for the people in that crowd that come up for the first time, and I don't know that they actually came up, but for the people that believe in him for the first time, and that was their call in that moment, our call as Christians sitting on our couch today in the comfort of our home is to still do that, to come to Jesus and drink, to come back to him. John gives us all these beautiful pictures of belief throughout his gospel. And he says, believing, it's, it's, it's like being satisfied by a drink. It, it's like feasting on Jesus and, and eating his flesh and drinking his blood, according to John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Um, I am the, the door. I am the good shepherd. And we get all these pictures of what biblical belief looks like. And in this one, he says, I will give you something that will satisfy you in a way that nothing else can. It satisfies and sustains. So the answer to that first question, how am I orienting my life around coming and drinking? I don't know what that looks like for you. I think there are certain weeks where I would say, man, I'm confident to answer that question. And then there are other weeks where I feel like I really haven't done a good job of that and I'd be a little more slow to answer it. Let me think through a couple others. The second question is this, am I, am I drinking often or am I letting myself get spiritually dehydrated? The third question is, is there an area in my life that is keeping the spirit of God from flowing as he ought? Jesus does say this, he says, whoever believes out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow the spirit. So I think the question is, man, how do I have more flow in my life? How is the spirit increasingly evident in my life? Uh, sometimes I, I feel like as a Christian that my life, instead of a hose, it's, a, it's an outpouring and an outflow of the spirit. My life as a Christian can feel more like a squirt gun with just isolated spirit squirts, isolated moments that I feel like God enables me to do that which is pleasing to him. And then at other times or other weeks, it feels like, man, my, my walk with Jesus is rich and his spirit is welling up in me and flowing out. And guys, there's not a magic formula for this, but for, for how our lives can be an increasing stream and how our lives can be a channel, a hose to which the spirit flows through us into a dry and barren world that needs him. There's not a formula for that, but what there is is Jesus' words that say this, come to me and drink. Keep coming to him because the spirit always works in connection with Jesus. The spirit of God takes Jesus's truth and he applies it to us he, his role is always in operation with Jesus, not independent of Jesus. And so these questions, how am I orienting my life around coming and drinking? 
Am I drinking often or am I allowing myself to get spiritually depleted? The third being, is there an area in my life that is keeping the spirit from flowing as he ought? In other words, is there a, is there a kink in the hose? Is there an area in my life where the hose is knotted up and it's kinked and the spirit of God is not flowing through me and to others through practical means like the fruit of the spirit? Guys, I, I, I don't know where you're at. And like I said, I feel like on some weeks I'm really encouraged with these questions. And then other weeks I feel a little discouraged if I'm honest. Um, but I do know this, that the call remains the same. The call is always to come back. The call, whether you're having good, quiet times with the Lord and you feel like you're being used in his kingdom and having good interactions with non-believers, or whether you feel like your Christian walk is stagnant and dry and barren. The call is to come back and drink. And, and I'm so I'm so refreshed in this passage that Jesus doesn't first say, go and make a difference and go live by the Spirit and go do it. You got it. The first call, he says, come to me. Come get to know me and come enjoy me and come believe in me and rest and trust and receive and enjoy. And out of that, out of that, God will produce in us. God, the Spirit of God will flow in and through us to a world that desperately needs. Jesus. For the moms out there, I just know based off the experience of with my own wife, things she shared and, and what I've seen of how it can be hard tending to children all day long that need and need and need and need and need. Joseph, for instance, first thing in the morning, every morning, mom, I want milk or dad, I want milk. Like he, he, he constantly needs things. And for moms, it can be hard to, to, to take time to pause and to get and to receive from the Lord. But I just want to encourage you moms, and I want to encourage you dads, and I want to encourage all of Midlands Church. The grounds for coming to Jesus, all right, the privilege that we have in coming to Jesus and drinking is not because of how well we've drunk in the past or because of how well we've kept up our walk with him. The only grounds for coming and drinking from Jesus is the fact that he came to earth for you, bled, died, suffered, so that you can have life and have it abundantly. And he doesn't want to just pay for your sin. He didn't just die for the penalty of our sins, but he died to give us power over sin through his indwelling spirit, who according to the Bible, does abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. I don't want to limit the power of the Spirit. I, I want to I be aware of my weaknesses and that I fall so often, but I want to keep coming back and begging God to work in and through me. And so I, I don't know for those questions what, what it may look like for you. Maybe it would be some, some adjustments in your schedule so that you can orient your life around drinking. Maybe it would be accountability with brothers and sisters that, that check in, not to keep tabs on your quiet time, but to make sure you stay hydrated. Or, or maybe you would want to, to really have a, a heart check and say, God, is there any area in my life where I am quenching the Spirit? The Bible says, these children of God, I, I don't think we lose the Spirit of God. 
but we can certainly quench it. We can certainly kink the hose. And so I think it's helpful to have those gut checks where we say, God, is there any area of my life where I'm, my sin is, is kinking the hose and my sin is quenching your spirit so that I'm not used by you as I should be? Again, if you're discouraged by those questions, his call remains the same. And his call is first, come to him. He promises that he'll be enough. So we're going to move through this last section really briefly. Um, we really camped out mostly in the middle. But again, the story goes the noise and then the invitation. And then third is the responses. So here are the responses to the claim that Jesus makes in the middle of this feast. There's actually, I'm going to give you a little hint. As I read through verses 40 through 52, there are, I believe, seven different responses, seven different either people or groups that respond in a certain way. So, so see if you can pick those up as we're reading through. The first four responses actually are all responses of the crowd. And then the last three responses are responses of the religious leaders. Okay, so let's, let's check this out. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. This is the people, the crowds but no one laid hands on him. So even right there, you get four responses amongst the people. Some say he's a prophet, which for a Jew wasn't the same as the Messiah. They respected him. They, they knew something supernatural was going on, but he's, not, he's a prophet. Some said he's the Christ. Their response was dead on. And some, there was the stumbling block of where Jesus was from. And, and it's funny how they say, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that he was supposed to come from, from Bethlehem and, and be an offspring of David? And, and one commentator says you can almost see John grinning as he writes this because we know as the readers, well, he did come from Bethlehem. He was born there. He grew up in Nazareth, and he is an offspring of David. But people don't know that. And there was a tradition that said that the Messiah, when he came, would come suddenly. And so Jesus isn't quite fitting into their box of expectations, and therefore they're, they're hung up. It's a stumbling block, and the issue is where Jesus is from. The last group amongst the crowds actually wanted to arrest him in verse 44. So there's, there's a spectrum there. And then as you move through the end of the passage, 45 through 52 says this, the officers then came back to the chief priest. So remember, these are the same officers that the chief priests and the Pharisees had sent out and said, go arrest them, the temple police. You go arrest Jesus. And they were going to go do their job, but they didn't quite fulfill their mission. They kind of got captivated by this, this rabbi from Galilee. So check it out. It says, 45, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring them? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any one of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? 
but this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. And what, what John, John's very ironic again here, and you can almost hear him laughing and grinning as he's writing this again. Verse 50. Remember, they had just asked, do any of the Pharisees believe? And then it says, Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to him before and who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man first without giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Certain see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So interesting how their question Nicodemus, who is the teacher of Israel, actually sort of defends Jesus and says, hey, if we're going to judge a man by our law, we need to follow our law in doing that. And he actually defends Jesus, and they get frustrated and say, are you a backwooded, hicktown, Nazareth boy too, essentially? Um, and so Nicodemus is kind of the, the brunt of some of their frustration that was a, originally aimed at Jesus and is kind of steered towards him. Again, there are seven different responses in here. You've got some say he's a prophet, some say he's Christ, and they believe and they see him for who he is. Some that have a stumbling block, and there's an issue. There's it's that whole issue of background. Like, I don't really think he's the Messiah because this isn't adding up, at least in their mind. Some that want to arrest him. The chief priests and the Pharisees, obviously, they not only are rejecting Jesus, but they're trying to manage the crowd so that others reject him as well. And then the temple guard that are trying to do their job in arresting this man, but they become overcome and captivated by the authority in which he teaches. And they say, no one ever spoke like this man. And then you have Nicodemus. He's supposed to be the voice of the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's supposed to represent them in, we've got to get rid of this guy. But instead, he's the voice of reason and wisdom who says, does our law, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And so, guys, here's, here's the point with what I'm saying with all this. Seven different responses, and, and I would actually boil them down into four. Because these seven specifics can kind of fall into four categories. One is some people respond to Jesus rightly. And they embrace him and they drink and they accept and they trust and they yield and they submit. And their eyes are open to who Jesus is as the Christ. That's the right response. Some are impressed and enamored and kind of curious. Like we see that with the people that are saying he's a prophet. And the officers that are supposed to arrest him, they're, they're, they're impressed with the authority in which he speaks. And even Nicodemus, he's kind of curious and enamored with Jesus at this point. That's what it seems like, at least. So you've got the right response of this is the Christ. You've got the impressed, enamored, curious response. That's the second one. You've also got the, the hang-up response, the stumbling block. And this would be people that maybe in your own life you would say, you know of people who would say, man, I can't follow the Lord. I can't embrace Jesus because of X, Y, Z. Maybe because of something that they experienced that was really hard. or Maybe because of uh, the way they were wronged by a Christian who misrepresented the name of Jesus. And there's something in their path that's a stumbling block that's keeping them from embracing Jesus for who he is. And then the last response, 
is just this response of downright rejection, which is the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they are hard-hearted and aggressive in coming at Jesus. And guys, I think we can be overwhelmed by the range of responses and it can leave us sometimes almost crippled by what to do. How do I navigate this? But guys, as Christ followers, the call is the exact same as it was the day you received Jesus. The best way to win people with varied responses is for us to keep drinking, for us to abide in Jesus, for us to pursue him and to enjoy him and to spend time in his word. If we're going to be effective in winning people with confusing and vast responses, if we're going to be effective in watering a dry and barren and needy world through the spirit that dwells within us, prompted by Jesus, prompted by his love and his death and the power that stems from that, then guys, we've got to be drinking and we've got to be coming. We've got, in, in the words of, I don't know, maybe it was Matt who said, we become what we behold. And if we're expecting to give, we've got to get. And so I think in dealing with non-believers and the whole spectrum of responses to Jesus, our primary call is go drink yourself. Go enjoy him. Go love him. And, and remember, regardless of what your walk has looked like in the past week, whether you've been faithful or not, your ability to come to Jesus is not based on how faithful you've been, but on his faithfulness towards you. The fact that he comes, that he loved you, that he died for you, that he claimed you and he called you his own and you're his children and you are right with him. You are indwelt and empowered by his spirit. You're an ambassador, his representative. And guys, we have no reason to fear. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And so I hope you seek him and I hope you find him satisfying. And if you, if you don't know Jesus, or maybe you'd say, I'm not really quite sure what I think, or maybe I kind of identify with one of these responses in the story. I would encourage you with the same thing that Nicodemus says. Nicodemus says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So I would just encourage you, give Jesus a hearing and learn what he does. And ask, ask a friend. If you're not sure about him and you're not sure where you stand, ask people, man, we would love to talk to you about why we think the best decision you can ever make is letting him be the drink that satisfies your deepest longings and your deepest desires, your deepest thirst that we all have. So here's the last thing I'll say is we come and drink. The spirit of God flows in and out of us to water a dry and desolate world that is thirsty for an ultimate drink that satisfies. And guys, I hope as a church that we will recognize in pursuing Jesus and in drinking and in abiding and in trusting and in believing, that is the best way I can be of kingdom use. That's the starting point for being used and for being the hose that the Spirit flows mightily through.
we don't have it all figured out, but man, I trust that the power, sufficiency of the spirit of the finished work of Jesus is enough for me to be of kingdom use and for you guys to be of kingdom use too. So I hope you were encouraged by this. I've been encouraged in studying this text and um, blessings Midland church. Uh, I hope our moms have a wonderful mother's day and thank you so much for hearing. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. and We thank you for what we can learn from this text. We thank you that our call is to come and to drink. And we pray that your spirit would flow. We pray that your spirit would be evident in our lives, that we would be salt and light, that it would be clear where we stand. And that a watching world that is craving for a thirst that quenches, for a drink that quenches, I pray that they would see that we're different and be drawn to it. I pray, God that we would pursue you and that we would trust that you're enough. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.